Roxy, there are so many interesting factoids about Carmen. Carmen as in our favorite Liberace-style Christian rapper. <laughs> First of all, his full name was Carmelo Dominic Licciardello. <sighs> I can see why he shortened it to Carmen. And also, that seems very fitting. It does. Two, he described his mother as a child prodigy on the accordion. So the talent runs in the blood. Three, he became a Christian at Disneyland. Yes, I love this. Again, not surprising. Mm -mm. A little foreshadowing of the uh, love for makeup and costumes. Mm -hmm. This makes sense. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian dorks making our way in New York. I'm Roxy Stone. And I'm Caitlin Beatty. Setting aside Carmen for a minute, do you have any vivid memories, Roxy, involving Christian music growing up? Well, if we're going to set aside Carmen, that takes away a few. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. He was so central. You know, I think we've talked about this before. Like, I grew up in, you know, a small town with only a country radio station. So it wasn't something that I was, like, listening to Caleb or whatever. But Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there was recommendations and, like, Brio magazine or somewhere in youth group. I know Brio always comes back to Brio. But so, I mean, I did get into several of them. I mean, I remember going to see like a couple of different concerts uh, at big churches in Denver. I remember how much I loved the Jars of Clay and the DC Talk albums Mm -hmm. and like would listen to them constantly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely have some vivid memories of those years. Mm -hmm. Although I feel like I missed a lot of it too. Like I have friends Mm. who were like homeschooled or friends who were really, really in it. And they were, you know, they knew way more than I did about like, who's the guy that did the serial song? Chris somebody. Oh, Chris Rice? Yes, Chris Rice. Who are some other big ones? Oh, I mean, Point of Grace. Well, yeah. There was a band called Delirious. Oh, yeah. There were also the, like, Christian ska and punk. Yes. You know, subgenre. Skillet. Reliant K. Yeah. So my senior year of high school, I dated my first boyfriend was an atheist, which was a Mm. big point of conscience for me. (laughs) And I remember telling him that MXPX was, they were actually Christians. And he was like, what? (laughs) No. And I was like... (laughs) Yeah. Christians can be cool. You've been listening to Christians all this time and you didn't even know it. (laughs) So point one for Jesus. And the Wow albums. Do you remember Mm, the Wow CDs? They're like compilations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, So I feel like my time of listening to CCM was circa middle school and high school. Right. Mm -hmm. And some of it's terrible. And some of it holds up, like musically. You know, I'm like, this isn't bad. What holds up? Which one's like when you go back and listen, you're like, yeah. A lot of DC talk and Newsboys mm-hmm. still holds up. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Jars of Clay. I think they're like really good singer-songwriters. Yeah. Like a yeah. lot of their lyrics are really good. Um, it was weird to me when I started hearing Jars of Clay at like the grocery store. Do you remember <laughs> when Flood was like, it was like oh. actually being played at grocery stores? Like, Yes. There was their know. big crossover. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's not a that's a good song. It um, is. like Sixpence None the Richer, of course, <gasps> had their Kiss oh, yeah. Me oh, I like crossover that. hit. Yeah. yeah. Um mm. there was something that felt like, ooh, it's a cultural win, you know? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. the Christians are being played on the top forty radio. That was like when Mandy Moore um kind of became famous around that time too. And that was another we had like our little crossover star. And she was, she was pure bringing the Bible and purity culture to the movies. Yes. Or Rebecca St. James. Mm-hmm. She was cool and pretty. <laughs> and pure. And pure. She was like the alternative to Alanis Morissette mm-hmm. and was like angsty. Very. And had like long curly hair, but was also saving herself for marriage. Yeah. That brings me back for a lot of us music, whether it's CCM on the radio or worship music in church, it's that's a visceral, powerful way to get like right back to the way we experienced God 
growing up in church. Which is why so much of this music feels loaded 20 years Mm. later, 25 years later, because these songs bring us back to a time and place that many of us don't necessarily want to return to or have positive memories of. Yeah, and some of those artists have taken problematic turns, too. (laughs) Not just the music. We don't like the music anymore, but the musicians themselves have become Trumpy or been in pictures with Trump. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Some of their politics, you know, they mess with my memories of listening Mm -hmm. to them as a kid and the innocence of that. Um, And I think, you know, I think that a lot of people are asking that today. I mean, even just since Hillsong and a Mm -hmm. lot of the things that we talked about a few weeks ago that have gone on with Hillsong, like those Hillsong songs, people are asking like, should we still be singing them? Um, so I think for a lot of people who grew up with this music, um, they're asking today, what do I do with this music that I used to love and I now find painful or problematic? A pastor in North Carolina named Chris Breslin recently tweeted this. He says, these days, any given CCM song is potentially someone's favorite and someone else's trauma trigger. anticipating this is pastoral care. I just thought that was so insightful that especially if you're in a role of designing a worship Mm -hmm. service, like as a pastor, a worship director, just recognizing that a lot of this music is polarizing. People Mm -hmm. have very strong positive connections to certain songs. And then for other people, hearing those songs takes them to back into an environment where they were spiritually abused or, you know, manipulated or Mm -hmm. just a place that they do not want to go back to. And I think music in particular, because of the way that it taps into our emotions, is a really powerful conduit for very good positive feelings and also very bad negative painful feelings. Absolutely. I hadn't really thought about that as like, a responsibility or a weight on like a worship director. Mm -hmm. Mm. Like for example, if your church has been singing shout to the Lord, right. Like, you know, or oceans Mm -hmm. (laughs) with a more contemporary Hillsong example. If you've been singing oceans for the last decade and now you've also been, you know, reading all of this news coming out of the Mm -hmm. Hillsong Network. Like, do you continue to sing Oceans? Do you sing Oceans Mm -hmm. with like an asterisk at the beginning? That's like, we know that Hillsong isn't always, you know, how do you frame it in a way that is responsible? And I mean, even setting that aside, which is, which, why would you set that aside? But even beyond that, like every time that a church sings those songs, they, are paying royalties on those songs that go back to these institutions that you might be Mm -hmm. like, I don't know that I want to give my money to those institutions, even if everyone loves that song. Right. It's not just a matter of taste, Mm -hmm. you know, or like a tarnished brand. It's also like every time we play, I assume the way that licensing works, like every time we play this song, in our worship service, they get a small cut of that. Mm -hmm. So then we're like directly supporting this institution that has found to be very unhealthy at the least. That is, that is a tricky moral conundrum. And part of me is tempted to say, oh, that's why we just sing hymns. But you know, some of the hymn writers had their own problems. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Although I don't think they still get royalties. Well, today we're going to speak to a worship director later about some of these very questions. But first, we're going to speak with a scholar and CCM, contemporary Christian music expert. Today's guest is Leah Payne, a theologian at Portland Seminary, co-host of the Weird Religion podcast, and author of a forthcoming Oxford Press book on the history of CCM. She's also a great Twitter follow. Evangelicals in particular are so skilled at appropriating certain forms of culture really quickly. Our conversation with Leah is coming up just after the break. 
Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. Get the deets on the religion beat. And if you like what we're doing at Save by the City, let us know. Give us a rating or a review, which goes a long way to helping get the word out about the show. We have a new review. I've only listened to one episode, and it was wonderful. Hosts really connect and engage important questions. No frills, but they stay on point. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe we need some more frills. Jonathan, give us the frills. You can also email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we will reply. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Leah, Roxy, and I are really happy that you responded to my random Twitter DM and agreed to come on Saved by the City. Welcome. Thank you. So, Leah, you're a religion scholar at Portland Seminary, and anybody who follows you online knows that you're really into the world of CCM, the history of CCM. You also co-host the Weird Religion podcast. So obviously the roots of CCM go back much farther than Carmen, <laughs> although in some ways he is kind of the one of the OGs of the CCM world. So as a scholar, as you're working on this book, how would you trace CCM's origins? Oh, wow. That's such a great question. I think that it is the product of a lot of different sources. The popular frame for that is usually this group of, one historian calls them hippieized Christians Mm -hmm. in the Bay Area in California, people known as the Jesus people. Mm -hmm. And they were essentially this, this crew of young people who had tried a lot of what they came to see as the excesses of hippie, free love, drugs, rock and roll kind of culture, and came to this, they had a basically a traditional revival experience where they converted charismatic evangelical Christianity and then started creating music for themselves and for their peers. And a lot of people will tie CCM to that. But I tend to think of it as a much broader effort because if you look at the charts of CCM, it's not just folks like that. It's also people who have really deep roots in other mostly white evangelical forms of Christianity. So If you're going to explain, I don't know if you or your listeners will know who groups like the Gaithers are, Bill and Gloria Gaither. Mm -hmm. They are not what most people would think of as rock and roll, (laughs) but they're still in there and they're still really influential. So I tend to think of it as a much broader group of people. For those who like to think of it as rock, like Christian rock, Mm -hmm. in their minds, like cooler forms of, of music, they usually will tie it to just the Jesus people because that has kind of like a cool rock star vibe to the story. But I I like to include a broader base of people that were trying to create music that would engage people and, and be a good vehicle for a certain view of the Christian life. I think of CCM as rising up, uh, not just at, at its roots, but, you know, especially when I was growing up, I think of it as like, the alternative to secular music. And I think about like K-Love and the, like, this is what you listen to in the car. It's friendly to the kids. I think their tagline is literally okay for the whole family. <laughs> safe for the little ears. I don't know. I don't remember. Something yeah. Like safe for the whole family is a, is a great slogan, isn't it? I think, you know, whoever did that, that's like marketing genius. Mm. But it's always Christian. Like it doesn't say that, but it's like... <laughs> It's very specifically Christian, but I think of it that like positioning itself in sort of in opposition to a secular hedonistic rock and roll world. Is that a right characterization? Like, is that a big part of like how the business was built? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, what's interesting is there's there have always been dissenting voices 
in the CCM world, people who had different visions of what Mm -hmm. they wanted. You know, there were some folks who really believed that if you create beautiful art and it doesn't need to say, you know, any specific message about Jesus, then like that should be the goal of what Mm -hmm. we might think as contemporary Christian. But I think much more, and and really this comes down to the people who are listening and buying, uh, many more people were interested in exactly what you said, you know, something that was safe and accessible for their family and, you know, something that, uh, especially if you're driving around in your car, that you don't mind your kids listening to. And I have to say, it's funny because I grew up not really listening to CCM, but I grew up in a really charismatic background. Mm -hmm. So of course it was around all the time. And I used to eye roll at that, Mm -hmm. but I actually, you know, now I have a six-year-old. And so I feel some empathy toward the idea. Mm -hmm. Like I can see why it it happens Mm -hmm. because it's like, you don't want your kid repeating whatever thing. So I think I, I, but yes, I think that that philosophy is core to the vast majority of folks that became really successful in what we think of as contemporary Christian music. It's this idea that you wanted to create a safe place for your family, according to your own ideas about what that would be. Mm -hmm. But my question, I guess, would be for you to like, did it work? (laughs) Clearly it did not. (laughs) This is going to answer your question, Leah. I went to this large youth revival in Muncie, Indiana, twice growing up called Acquire the Fire, mm-hmm. ran by this guy named Ron Luce. And it was essentially for preparing young Christians to prepare for battle for Jesus in like a hedonistic, dangerous world. And there was one specific session. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners can remember very similar teachings. It was I think we were shown literally a chart that was like, if you like Blink-182, you will like Reliant K. I remember those. It was, here's a way to enjoy this style of music and this kind of vocal performance, but the lyrics are going to be clean and they're also going to focus on Jesus. And so, you know, as soon as I got to college, I was given a much different understanding of how to engage music more generally. Like we can't break the world down into good, bad, safe, unsafe. I would say there were elements of the Christian music that I was listening to growing up that I would say were teaching me like false things about the world and about God. Mm -hmm. But I think for the time, especially for like a teenage mind, Honestly, it was probably for the best that I wasn't listening to Blink-182. Like I can actually... (laughs) understand the impetus. Like, yeah, there was a lot of raunchy teen stuff. When we were in high school, I appreciate what these adults were trying to do, even though I have not consciously sat down and listened to contemporary Christian music in a very long time. (laughs) If the goal was like, we just need to keep them on a steady diet of this kind of safe Christian music. No, that has not worked and I'm glad that it didn't work. There's a lot of beauty and goodness and meaning in the world to be found in music that is not made by Christians. I remember using those charts to find secular artists. I was like, oh, if you like jars of clay, ooh, <laughs> check out you too. <laughs> oh, you listen to you too. Yeah. And I remember That's <laughs> like the first time I listened to you too. Really but edgy. I, I truly use the charts the opposite way because <laughs> I was I knew who the Christian ones were, but I did it. I wanted to know the cool music, but I, I pretty much dropped the Christian music at around like ninth grade, 10th grade, mm-hmm. maybe, and started like listening to way more Weezer. <laughs> oh, yeah. Weezer You're naming all school. these bands that are like extremely clean and, you know, like Weezer and you too. That's true. That's true. I, I also listened to Dave Matthews Band. That was another one. I remember when Crash was out, we're all like super like locating ourselves. in. I know. <laughs> and I remember there was a guy who I went to college with who decided that he was going to write like a praise song with the chords of Crash. But as oh. you know, that's a really distinct chord progression. For, for you youngsters who are listening or don't know, when you hear it, it's like 
you know, mm-hmm. and, and the lyrics are like, are not a praise and worship song. No. Whoa. I haven't thought about that in so long, but now I'm <laughs> laughing really hard in my head. It's reminding me of the ways that Christians would, you know, be preparing for worship at church and think, what's a popular song now that we can incorporate into the music to be relevant? And so (laughs) one year, you know, sometime when I was in high school, the song, I Want to Soak Up the Sun by Sheryl Crow was really popular. Mm -hmm. And so we were like, let's change sun to sun. And that's the laziest. (laughs) It's literally one letter. It's not even a word. It's literally one letter. So, it you know this whole like cultural engagement thing takes you in some really weird places. Mm -hmm. It really does. Evangelicals in particular are so skilled at appropriating certain forms of Mm -hmm. culture really quickly. Evangelicals are quite progressive when it comes to media use. Mm -hmm. They're not when it comes to a lot of other things. But you see them trying things. They're pragmatic. Yeah. And I sort of think they're like very experimental. Yeah. One of the major shifts, obviously, in CCM was going from this sort of singer-songwriter bands to worship music. And, and I remember, I mean, I remember some of that shift. I remember going from listening to Jars of Clay to like Sonic Flood and Passion and, the, you know, and like having a worship experience in my car with my music. What do you think kind of explains that shift or what led to that shift in CCM? I do think that some of it has to do with the expansion slash consolidation of worshipers into mega church settings. Mm. People who do go to a church, they go less often and they go to these bigger congregations in urban and suburban centers. And the model of mega church ministry really depends on showmanship, mm-hmm. putting on these spectacular, entertaining worship experiences. There's like demand for it in, in the evangelical sphere. Just in ways we were talking about where it's like, well, okay, so stadium rock is cool, you know, in the Mm. regular world. So let's make worship a stadium rock type experience. Mm. And I don't know about you, but I've been to some of these services Mm -hmm. and they're extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And some of it, I think, is connected to the rise of just tech options. You know, you can do a lot with a little. Over a thousand people have filled out this survey that I've created, just asking pretty open-ended questions about what CCM is so people can answer however they want. And they ask them what what you listen to and why you listen to it. And did you think it was a formative experience? I would say that now I'm starting to notice some trends. A lot of the things are kind of macro examples of what you both were observing that people tended to grow out of it Mm -hmm. when they gained a little bit of independence. So some of them, you know, left that world when they were early high school. Some of them, like when they got the driver's license, some of them, when they got to college and they started just having a broader experience with different kinds of thought, Mm -hmm. but all that to say, many, many of them just no longer want that. And I should say that a lot of it is not, it's not only political affiliations, you know, it's not Mm -hmm. like, like I was conservative and then I became liberal or I was liberal and everything. It's just kind of like, yeah, that world, like having that safe world just doesn't do it for me anymore for whatever reason. I mean, that's not the only story because there are definitely still people who are like lifers. They're really excited about whatever's coming out and they'll go to the concerts, but there are fewer concerts. Mm-hmm. Many of the the biggest acts are still kind of legacy acts. Mm-hmm. It seems to me like worship music became big business, like not just for CCM, but I mean for these churches that were putting it out, these that really became like media empires like Hillsong, like Vineyard, like Passion. And not only big business just in terms of like radio plays, but like churches were paying royalties to sing these songs in their services. Yes, there is money to be made. I would say that in some ways it's like a lot of things. It's big business for very few. Right. There are some very well-known congregations who I think have exerted outsized influence on a broad swath of evangelical 
slash charismatic slash Pentecostal communities worldwide through this music. So you mentioned Vineyard. Vineyard is really a pretty small denomination. Mm -hmm. And yet in the 1990s wrote some of Mm -hmm. the biggest hits. I, (laughs) I referred to it and I don't mean this in a derogatory way at all, but as Jesus is my boyfriend music, because it really celebrates this intense mystical connection with Jesus mm-hmm. pour out my heart, which could very easily be translated to just a traditional like romantic love song between two people. But they they were very influential. Hillsong, I think Hillsong, you know, that's on everybody's mind, especially because of mm-hmm. the extreme meltdown that they have had. And I think that one of the things that they did in the US, of course, they had other branches, but in the US is they really figured out how to crack the US celebrity obsession Mm -hmm. that we have. And Hillsong literally toured. I mean, they had like rock concerts essentially and toured. Yeah, they did. And they weren't the only ones, but they really figured out how to do it. I think one of the things that they, they did that was smart was they used the whole church as a brand, like a worship brand, so they could adapt really quickly, like have younger, more diverse mm-hmm. worship bands. In the 90s, there was kind of a rise in these star worship leader types, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like Daryl Evans, Ron Cannoli, and they became kind of well-known apart from the churches that they were ministering in. Mm-hmm. And Hillsong had many different groups. What was interesting to me about, and this was maybe Vineyard in a lot of ways sort of started this, but these are Pentecostal charismatic rooted churches, Hillsong Vineyard, Mm -hmm. but we're singing them in my Southern Baptist church. And suddenly like church leaders who five years ago were singing like only hymns are now up there with like the projector and the slide and they've got their arms up in the air. And that was not what we were doing five years before in the First Baptist Church of Vona. <laughs> you really identified something that's super important, which for me is one of the reasons the argument that I made to even work on this as a as a subject of study. People who are not familiar with contemporary praise and worship or or CCM, sometimes they think of it as just this silly, like kind of a weird part of evangelical subculture. Mm-hmm. But what I think you identified is that it's it's really powerful. It can make big changes mm-hmm. in the world. So I know, uh, and I'm sure you know from your own experiences, that it is a big deal to get Baptists, Southern Baptists, like feeling their feelings like that in a worship <laughs> service, you know, like being so expressive. That is a big change. And that didn't come through uh, a pastor getting up and saying like, this is what the Bible teaches about mm-hmm. whatever, right? It came through music. And mm-hmm. so I think that it's a deep well that we should investigate. And also, you know, if we should look at what are the big songs now and what are, what can they tell us about what mm-hmm. will happen in the future? Mm-hmm. And those those very expressive, charismatic congregations that are doing things that seem quite strange You know, I I look at those, not just because that's what I've been trained to do, but also because I want to know where things are going. Hmm. And, you know, for good or for ill, I guess you could say, they're like a a leading indicator, (laughs) I think, of of where particularly white, but not exclusively white evangelicalism. In conversations about deconstruction and people who have kind of left the church or maybe not left the church or the faith, but they've left a very expressive intensely emotional version of Christianity, they can't, they say like, I can't listen to those songs anymore because they bring me back to a time and place. And looking back, I feel like those songs were manipulative. What would you say to people who critique all worship music as a form of manipulation since, you know, like we don't tend to hear charges against Adele that like, she's just using her voice in a way to make me feel things. And that's manipulative. And then she's asking me to spend $400 to go see her. And like, (laughs) this is all part of a big business that Adele is controlling using her amazing voice. Like how much of this is manipulative and how much of this is just acknowledging the power of music? Oh, wow. You know, I really appreciate you bringing that up because I, I will say that on this 
survey that I've created, I was very surprised at what even thinking about CCM in many different forms, what it brought out of people. It is clear that that music evokes things Mm -hmm. from people. I think I would use evocative as a more neutral category Mm -hmm. than manipulative because I, I do agree that manipulative, it has a more of a value statement. I will say though, I think that was the aim was definitely to like evoke a specific form of a posture toward God, toward the world, toward other people. But as you say, that is the goal of most (laughs) popular music is to make Mm -hmm. people feel something and to move them. And certainly evangelicals in the mid to late 20th century were not the first people who figured out that music could be used to shape sensibilities about things. That's just like humans are pretty smart in many different generations. So there are lots of different, like, you know, national anthems are a great Mm -hmm. way to like get people feeling a certain kind of way. Mm -hmm. And if you come to reject the meaning structure that that song creates, then it can be extremely painful. And I think that any tool, any powerful tool can be used to abuse. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to like downplay people's traumatizing experiences by saying that I think of it in more of a neutral way. But I just think one of the interesting things is that I found is that for every person who had like this horrible experience with CCM and just cannot listen to any song like strum of the guitar, they're just like, what? There are other people who will say that this is like something that saved my life. Right. I'm not interested anymore, but it gave me a place to belong, especially people who grew up with like Christian ska and punk. Mm-hmm. It, it was formative for them. It shaped them in a lot of ways. And they see it as it was a place for like, for example, many who were like, I was a kid who just did not belong anywhere and it gave me a place to belong. So yeah, it was meant to form things and it did it in a lot of different ways. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for giving us a tour of CCM, especially CCM circa our childhood. So, I love it. I love it. Yeah, it was great to have you on. And I think there's probably so many things we could talk about. And hopefully we will get to do that again. I will look forward to it. Thank you so much. I'm a huge fan. Love your work. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. <laughs> You know, when I think about like my current relationship with Christian music, especially worship music, um, that's not something I like listen to on my own. I'm not mm-hmm. very often like turning on um, shout to the Lord or anything um, and just, you know, dancing away in my apartment. But I really do love what our church is doing with worship music. Um, I think uh, it's a mix of old and new of Mm-hmm. hymns restyled and brand new like songs that our worship leaders have written. We have some really incredible artists uh, singing at our church. But also I think something that I've really noticed with what we do um, that I've really appreciated is that it's not only a mix of styles of music, it's also a mix of emotions in the music. Like mm. we sing a lot of laments as well as like, mm-hmm. it feels like we're working through the range of emotions toward God, which I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. I think we both go to churches that follow the liturgical calendar mm-hmm. and our yeah. worship director is very intentional about designing a worship service that matches the spirit of the time in the Christian mm-hmm. calendar. Like mm-hmm. right. Advent, the the dark, mysterious Advent songs mm-hmm. are some of my absolute favorite. But the, what Me I appreciate, too. maybe in comparison to the church I grew up in is that you don't feel pressure to be happy (laughs) all the time. Like there is a space for expressing happiness and joy. And there's also a space for expressing confusion and being overwhelmed or lament, even just recognizing that maybe how I feel in the worship service is not the primary point. Mm. Like maybe, maybe this is actually about recentering on a a reality that is bigger than whatever my emotions tell me. Because looking back, I remember kind of feeling pressure to have an emotional Mm -hmm. high, like an emotional high was like the mark of whether you were close to God, you know, and if you didn't have that experience in worship, a particular week was like, what did I do? What, what, what did I do wrong? I've, I've, I have unconfessed sin or something. It's like, no, you were on your period. 
or whatever. <laughs> like you got into a fight with your mom this morning. Like, right. <laughs> um, probably about your period. Um, but just, I don't know. I think in the more seeker sensitive mm-hmm. worship style, there can be a subtle pressure to have a kind of emotional experience that may not actually match how you are feeling toward God in that moment. And that's okay. I mean, I do remember it like, gosh, college, we had a, we had a really good band at our church, but I do remember feeling that way. I remember feeling like I had to have this like epic feeling every week. And I did because the music like Mm. got you there. Mm -hmm. I remember making some pretty strong commitments to God during those songs. Mm -hmm. But I also remember that sometimes the like crazy disconnect of like singing these songs and getting to this, like getting to this fervor and then being like, let's sit down for announcements and the sermon (laughs) on whatever. And it was like, what has just happened? Feeling like disjointed or something. I will say one thing that has been really cool. Our church, the church that I go to is called Good Shepherd. Uh, During the pandemic, we, of course, were meeting virtually. But we also, uh, during that time, the worship team, it kind of started out, I think they were just like recording songs for the virtual church gatherings. But then they started like having people, you know, having worship artists who were maybe out of work or people that we were connected with in California, like Mm. they would record with them over Zoom. And and it just kind of grew and grew and grew until they were like, just kind of creating this phenomenal um, Hmm. music every week. And now they've started what they are calling the Good Shepherd Collective, which has a couple of albums out. Uh, There's some great Advent music, speaking of, um, Hmm. as well as um, some hymn, a lot of of hymns, a bunch of spirituals. So it's been really interesting to me and inspiring to me to see the way that the pandemic like sparked this level of creativity and also gave I don't know, because of what was happening at the time, like the pandemic, the George Floyd protests, like the music felt like it was coming out of that and Hmm. felt like it was coming out of like a community of people experiencing that together. Mm -hmm. I feel really connected and proud of that, um, Mm -hmm. which has been really cool. Yeah, I like that idea of being able to create music that is a direct response to what's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. Like... Obviously, the last two years were incredibly difficult and heavy for a lot of people. And not just continuing to create worship music while the church couldn't meet in person, but actually using that as an opportunity to like respond Mm -hmm. in emotion and prayer to really hard things happening and giving a channel for that and like drawing people in that wouldn't have been part of it in normal, you know, pre-pandemic times. So I thought it would be cool to bring on um, David Gunger, who is the worship leader at my church and who sort of spearheaded or helped to facilitate the Good Shepherd Collective and just talk with him about how that project was birthed, what it's meant to him. And also, uh, as we talked about earlier, sort of like as a worship director, when you're thinking about all of these things that we talked about, like how do you sit down and really think about how to approach the worship time in your service. Welcome, David. Thank you, Roxy, for having me. I'm excited to have you. And I wanted to talk about the Good Shepherd Collective because it's something that I am really proud of um, as having been created and birthed within the church that I attend, even though I had nothing to do with it. I'd love to just have you tell us a little bit about the Good Shepherd Collective how it started, why it started, and what it is. Yeah, thank you. So during the pandemic, when things first shut down, I remember talking to Michael, the other pastor, being like, do we need to cancel church? Because we didn't (laughs) know like what was going to be happening. And so that night, I called up a friend of mine who also goes to the church named Jeremy Stanley, who's a great videographer. And I said, hey, man, I I might need you to be ready to – we might need to film church. And so we started – We started getting together and filming church during the beginning of the pandemic. And then about a month into it, I got COVID myself. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those things where I got really sick, but I knew I had to do Easter for the church. And so I called up a lot of different friends who are musicians. And I said, hey, can you just record yourself in like your apartment or in your house? 
and I sent a click track, which means like the tempo of the song. And I sent like a little acoustic demo and I just kind of trusted them to play on it. So I sent it to friends all around the United States and actually around the world. We had a, a pianist from uh, Paris join and we had a drummer in LA yeah. and we had a bass player in Nashville, all kinds of, all kinds of different friends, um, as well as some friends here in New York who have been a part of our community. And the first time that it really kind of came to, together as a collective, more than just our little individual church um, musicians was during Easter. And somehow it came together mm. where um, it was really beautiful. And from there, it started to grow. And one of the things mm -hmm. that we really wanted to emphasize within um, the art that we were making was we wanted to emphasize diversity as well as um, mm -hmm. having a place for musicians that um, they were excited about creating the art. But essentially, there are two new songs each week that we kind of aim for. Um, and yeah, that's the Good Shepherd Collective is then this collective of musicians from all around the world. And so during the pandemic, one of the things that we stressed was we really wanted to be, uh, one of our, our goals is to be a cathedral for the arts. Um, meaning we, we don't want to just have arts for ourselves or for the purpose of ourselves, but for the purpose of like the good of our city, of our neighbors and our world. And so one of the things that we did during the pandemic was we started um, an artist grant fund where anyone who is in need ever during the pandemic, we had a, a grant for people. This was non-artists as well. If they needed help, it was our deacons fund that would help people with um, groceries or rent or that type of thing. And we gave away tons of grants. But during that time, uh, we also said, hey, a, a huge part of the industry of musicians and actors and artists mm -hmm. in the city are out of work right now. And so we did a, a grant that was funded by our, our church. And, um, you know, we, a lot of musicians were so grateful for that. And because of that, um, we are seeing the fruits of that kindness that the congregation showed to musicians. Musicians show that kindness back to us all the time. And we have an amazing group of musicians um, and community here in New York. When you think about the ways that, the time of worship music specifically within the liturgy. Like how are you, like how do you think about you're helping form a people and a community and, um, and that can take time. Um, but it's also, I, I'm assuming as a worship pastor, there's like a way that you're thinking about that and approaching that a philosophy of formation yeah. to how you develop yeah. worship. So I think that's a really insightful question. And I think that the songs that we sing at church, they're always prayers. Mm. And those prayers can have um, certain times you want to pray songs that um, have been prayed before. And then there's certain times where you want to pray very, like, through language that's just very common to you and very, it doesn't feel, in a sense, it doesn't feel sacred. It's just like you're almost just like talking to God. And I don't think there's any wrong way to pray. Mm -hmm. there's a story on prayer that it actually, and it will inform me when I, when I talk about the way that like we pray as we sing, which mm -hmm. is this story about um, it's a old, you know, tale about mm -hmm. and within uh, Eastern Orthodoxy where someone is asking, how do I pray without ceasing? And they, they end up going from priest to priest and they say, can you teach me how to pray without ceasing? And everywhere he goes, this, this person, uh, this pilgrim, if you would, is, is really uh, not satisfied with the answers he's given. And finally, he runs into a priest who says, I don't know how to teach you how to pray without ceasing, but I, I can teach you how to say a prayer. And so he, he teaches him the Jesus prayer, mm -hmm. um, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. And so the pilgrim on his way from going from church to church to try to go on this pilgrimage to learn how to pray without ceasing, he would say this prayer first. He would say it with his mouth, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. And then he noticed it moved from his mouth to just silence, but with every step, it was Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, and this pattern. And then finally, he said his very heartbeat was Lord have mercy, mm. Christ have mercy. And he realized he became the prayer. That's how you pray without ceasing is mm. he never said the words, he just becomes it. Yeah. And I think with, with music, one of the amazing things is like melodies um, or lyrics, like poetry, they can they can be um, 
like almost like memories in a way where you'd be like, we, we have these shared memories where you hear a beautiful melody and we both think it's beautiful. We share this thing. And it's in that sharing it, there's, there's really a place of gratitude where it's like, oh, you know about this too. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you, you've, you've heard, you've heard. It's, it's amazing. So I, I think that music in, in the best of like times for especially church is like it's, it's these signposts to, to these truths that um, are so much bigger than us. We don't just own them ourselves. And when we hear that like, oh, we're sharing in this beauty and this glory and this, all these types of like religious language that you can use, but it's this sense of awe and wonder that leads you to a place of surrender. I'm also yeah. thinking about how many times I have sung with our church, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. Like we've, yeah. we've had that as a refrain in our church for years and like, even as you were saying it, I, it's like, it's so, Im- like, yeah. the refrain started in my head and I was, and it was like, gave me a sense of something, of peace, um, I guess. <laughs> so like, let's use that as an example. Just really, I'll try to be really quick with it. It's like, I have these, these, like, this structure of the service that is actually um, mm-hmm. not very creative, meaning like, it's always the same structure. It just always is. However, because it's always the same structure, there are moments that I don't need lyrics to be up, and you know what it is right away. Mm-hmm. We have prayers of the people each week that are written by our people. My favorite part of the service. Yeah. Well, and I would say it's my favorite part of the service with Eucharist. Is like it's all a part of this, mm-hmm. this thing, but it leads us up to the table. And before we do, it's like prayers that were written by the people, for the people, of the people, by the people, that is like... Actually, like (laughs) leaning in to who we are as a church and who we are as a community. And it really helps form us prayer. And when we do that, the music and everything, it's like leading us to this place, to this moment. And so because of that, we have a little bit of freedom within that to not just always say every song has to be this because we only, you know, we make it essentially a sacrament. And I know that sounds a little bit clumsy, but I've been in scenarios where it's like, if you don't think sacramentally, you start making things that aren't sacraments, they become holier than they should, in my opinion. So like things like sometimes the sermon, you know, it's like they can preach for an hour because it's right. the sermon and it's the most important thing of the whole service, which is, it's okay for that no, community. True. That's not yeah. our view. It's the same thing with worship music where sometimes you're going like, it has to be a certain way. Because it has to, to be for that community, which is not or, how it yeah, is for or us. <laughs> I have been in many evangelical services over the years where the worship lasted quite a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And part of that can also be like you make an altar call a sacrament yeah. or you make a – and I'm not trying to diss on those like expressions of worship. They're all expressions of worship. I'm just trying to say that usually those types of expressions of worship can be done without community. And what mm-hmm. the sacrament like leads mm-hmm. you into is you're like, oh, there's this thing of like the church, I can't do this by myself. And in that fact, is. I bring something to this that yeah. you'd be like, oh, that's the difference between the sacramental imagination. That's so true. I can listen to a sermon on a podcast. Yes. I can listen to worship, worship music. music on the radio. You can go to a concert of like Snoop Dogg and have a worship experience with But like, I can't. I can't do communion by myself. No. And technically, like, that's that's also why we get excited about baptisms. That's also mm-hmm. why we get excited about, because you're like, this is the community coming together. Mm-hmm. That's like our sacred thing. <laughs> so the music, um, how I look at it is like, it, it actually is in submission to that sacred thing. So it's helping support it, but it's it's not bigger than. Well... Thank you so much for joining me, David, and for sharing a, both about your approach to sort of the liturgy of worship and also about Good Shepherd Collective. And I think we're going to get to listen to one of my favorite songs from Good Shepherd Collective after this. Thanks so much, Roxy. I ask God a prayer today Looking for an answer Knowing war is raging on 
Christians killing brothers God why don't you intervene And help those who are suffering I hear silence I asked God a prayer today Crying out for mercy little child holding on sickness overtaking please lord won't you intervene help the child suffering i hear silence God a prayer today Though I'm tired praying How can I still pray to God While this world is burning That was I Hear Silence from the Good Shepherd Collective. Find out more about the collective at goodshepherdcollective.com and go wherever you listen to your music to find their albums, featuring a range of traditional hymns and spirituals, original music, and even some familiar cover songs. Save by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward, and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Julia Wyndham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks, Thanks for listening. For listening. <laughs> All right.